Nicole Matthews, corporate America dropout turned entrepreneur and owner of The Henley Company, an event travel and lifestyle management firm. It wasn't that long ago that I was dreading my drive to my fancy corporate job each day or felt disenfranchised with the work I was doing. In 2007, I jumped off the corporate escalator and directly into the elevator of opportunity. Today, I'm an author, speaker, educator, and serial asker. I wholeheartedly believe that your life changes when you start creating your own opportunities and making big asks. Hands down, the business and life I have today is 100% the product of giving myself permission to design the life I want to live. It was always my dream to work at the Olympics, and by making a big ask, that dream became a reality. I now have multiple Olympic projects to add to my life resume. I created the Big Ask Podcast to share these best practices with you. Whether you're an entrepreneur hungry for revenue generating tips or an individual restless to make a significant change, the life you want to live could be just one big ask away. Get ready to be entertained by real life stories, no filter conversations, and inspired by the daily hustle. So let's get started. This is the Big Ask Podcast. and welcome back to the Big Ass Podcast. I'm Nicole Matthews, and I'm delighted to be with my good friend, uh, Dr. Joe Goldblatt. And I am looking forward to a great conversation that he and I are about to have. We've been uh, friends and colleagues Oh my gosh, I'm going to guess north of 20 years by now, since you know my niece and nephew and the age that they are. Far north. Uh, <laughs> I remember Ian when he was only one year old. That's How true. How old is he now? 22. So yes, so it I've has... known you all for almost 25 years. Yes, I know. My goodness. So um, we, are, uh, we are going to be in for a dynamic conversation, I'm sure. And um, there is probably about once a month after we see something that you post on Facebook that somebody in my family doesn't say, hasn't Joe figured out how to live his best life? Like this is, you are a guy who can literally make going to the dry cleaner an adventure because of what you see along the route of the people that you make meet, all of a sudden you're dancing in a square. I mean, it's just, it's so wonderful the way that you have literally embraced life. So let's talk a little bit about that to get started. Where does that come from? And what was like six-year-old Joe like? Were you always that precocious and and full of life? Nicole, I was so lucky, like you, to have wonderful parents. My mother, to give you an example, when I was married to Nancy 42 years ago this May, decided we would have a rehearsal dinner event. And she walked into the restaurant and she said to the servers, I only have one request. I never want to see those wine glasses less than half full. (laughs) Wow. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, they'd only booked a few rooms at the hotel for the rehearsal dinner, but by the end of the evening, every room was booked because people couldn't drive home, you know? (laughs) They had such fun. So my parents understood the joie de vivre, and we had lots of parties in our home. When I was a wee child, I was not very good with sports, so what I did was I created backyard carnivals, you'd call them in the United States, where I would invite the children in the neighborhood to operate different games, rides, etc. And then I would stand at the gate and sell tickets, you know, for people (laughs) to come in. So I actually would receive income from the people who 
were there with stalls, booths, concessions, selling things, and I would receive the ticket income as well. And everybody would have a grand time. Mm -hmm. So I think it was the influence of my parents. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And so it's natural that you would go into the industry of special events. That feels like just a natural progression on great parties in your home as a child to producing some worldwide events that ultimately you did in your career, right? So Yes, but I'll tell you how that happened. Back in the 1970s, when I met my wife, Nancy, we were mimes, as you know. We performed right. all over the world, throughout Europe, etc., as professional mimes. And one day, the Smithsonian Institution called us and said, we have a new exhibit called Celebration, a World of Art and Ritual, curated by this world-famous anthropologist named Victor Turner. And it was at the Renwick Museum of Art. And I said to the Smithsonian, why are you calling us? They said, because the exhibit is very dry. It's all these African and Middle Eastern and other objects of celebration, but they're in glass cases. Children come through, they see them, they don't really connect with them. We would like you and Nancy to stand in one of the cases, frozen like statues of celebration. <laughs> and then when the children get to the last case where you are, you'll come to life, step out of the case, and do a workshop with them about celebration. Well, that planted something in my mind to understand that special events were more than entertainment. Special events were about engagement and outcomes. And in fact, later, when I researched the uh, root word of event, I discovered that it's from the Latin, a venere, and a venere means outcome. So every live event is an outcome. And so that's how I found my way into the magic and mystery of special events. Well, as somebody who has been in the event industry for a very long time myself now, um, I just wanted to say thank you for all of the work that you've done for our industry. I mean, I often refer to you um, as the godfather of the event industry because you have really been in instrumental in, and first of all, um, bringing us together as a professional industry. I mean, you moved us away from people who just did or per, were perceived to have just done uh, parties to real, you know, strategic events. And, 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 and I know in your, in your more recent books, you talk about event leaders versus event managers. And mm. I've been fortunate enough to uh, use your book as my textbook for my special event management class that I, that I teach. And so um, where did you see that opportunity for the industry? I mean, why did you step up and really decide to be the person who, along with others, um, who, who was going to shepherd the industry um, along and bring formal education to us after many years of not having it? Well, I'll tell you how that happened. In the 1980s, there was a conference in um, first in San Diego, California at the um, uh, the uh, Hotel Del Coronado. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it was moved the next year to the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach, Florida. I was invited that year to be the keynote speaker at the conference because I'd been doing some writing for magazines about special events. And one evening, as happens at conferences, I was on a coach with about 50 other people on my way to an evening 
evening event. And I was seated in the very front row because I always got a little motion sickness. And I thought it'll feel better if I'm on the front row. And I was seated next to a man who was much older than I am. In fact, he's still with us. He's in his late 90s now, Bob Graves, who owned a large party rental company in um, Paoli, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. And Bob turned to me and he said, Joe, what do you see behind you? Looked over my shoulder. I said, I see about 50 other people. He said, oh, no, you don't. You see an entertainment producer, a decorator, a caterer, a security expert, a lighting expert, a designer, and on and on and on. And I said, well, yes, I do. And he said, do you realize that each of them belong to their own individual associations, but there isn't one association for all of us together that would allow us to use the forces of supply and demand to do business, to grow this industry, to have dialogue. And I said, well, that's interesting, Bob. Why are you telling me this? He said, because you're going to start that association. (laughs) I said, Bob, I don't know anything about starting an association. He said, Joe, it's really quite easy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, again, look over your shoulder. I looked again. He said, do you notice that all those people are facing in the same direction? Wow. And we're all going in the same direction together. And you're leading them right now. You're on the front row. Mm -hmm. So just continue on. (laughs) Well, with that, at the third meeting of Special Events Magazine in Dallas, Texas, I asked permission to host a small organizational meeting. I thought I'd be lucky if 30 people showed up at four o'clock at the end of the day's conference. So I set the room purposefully for only 15 seats, thinking I'd be lucky if that many came. Maybe I'd have to pull in a few chairs to make it look full. Right. The whole over 100 people came to that meeting. They stood in the hallway in a long queue line all the way down the corridor. And from that note of interest from the industry, mm-hmm. within six months, we had elected officers, hired an executive director, created the first industry certification program, certified special events professional. And today we have over 5,000 members in 30 countries all over the world. I'm one as yeah. a CSCP. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I know it was important for you to create the industry designation for the CSCP because it just continues to elevate the profession, right? Like other, you know, the, the CPA, the, you know, other industries have other industry designations. So why was it so important for the event industry to have an industry designation as well? Well, in the United States, it's interesting. The word certification means qualification. It has a different meaning in Europe and the UK. The word certification means something very different. Uh, When I gave my first speeches in Europe and in the UK, I would tell the audience that it was important for them to be certified. And the program planner, I'll never forget, came to me at the end of the first talk and said, please don't use that word. I said, why? She said, because it means to be put inside the insane asylum. You're certifiable. (laughs) But qualifications in the United States have always been important uh, by the professions. When the professions came along in the early part of the 19th century, businesses wanted to regulate themselves. And the best way to do that 
was through experience, qualification, assessment, and continuing education. Mm -hmm. And so thousands of associations have qualification programs or certification programs. And this was an opportunity for the events industry, as you say, that was perceived as a lightweight pseudo industry of party planners to really take its place beside noted professions, established professions such as accounting, medicine, uh, and so on. And Mm -hmm. uh, today, it's the hallmark of professionalism. If someone wants to apply for a post, a job, if they have CSEP or CMP, Certified Meeting Professional, or CFEE, Certified Event uh, Executive, event uh, certified festival and event executive it means they their their offer of employment will increase by about five thousand pounds dollars so it means that it's it's a significant recognition by an employer that they are more skilled more experienced than others and so it's become almost a uh, essential uh, Mm -hmm. qualification to uh, uh, earn employment today yeah, it's it's it was a very important as part of my professional journey as well. It, it felt it felt very um, satisfying and important for me to do that. Uh, gosh, I've now uh, renewed twice, so I, I feel like at some point, don't they just like give it to you if you're still breathing? But <laughs> um, but um, but it is something that I'm very proud of that I did um, right after I started my business, and um, and just it, it was such a sense of accomplishment. It's not an easy task to get to the place of actually earning the designation. Um, it was, you know, quite a test, quite a writing assignment. Um, but, uh, but I thought it was important and I always encourage my own students to, um, to pursue those, those routes as well. Because again, I think it just shows your, your level of commitment, like you said, in a job interview or on your CV, it just shows your level of commitment to, to the industry. This isn't just a hobby for those who um, have that designation. What I think it demonstrates, and we did this purposefully, is the complexity of the role of the event manager or event Mm -hmm. leader. Mm -hmm. In other qualifications in this industry, what is required is a multiple choice test, years of experience. But the differentiator for the CSEP is you actually have to demonstrate your ability to develop, plan, and deliver an event mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by having a blueprint of um, uh, of uh, requirements that mm-hmm. have to be met, marketing, accounting, um, human resource management, risk management, all of these things that have become so important over the last 30, 40 years are demonstrated through that exam. And as you said, just the process of studying Mm -hmm. builds your confidence because Mm -hmm. you think, wow, this is really a very complex profession. It's not for everyone. And if I have the confidence to sit for the exam, uh, the outcome can only be good regardless of what the final score is. Yeah, definitely. So um, you were very instrumental in starting the first program at George Washington University, mm. correct? That's correct. So, t- so talk a little bit about the, uh, that process of establishing a real formal education. Now we're working into a degree program so people could actually earn a, or earn a degree in the industry, mm. which did not exist. I mean, when I even was in college, 
25 years ago, I mean, that was not really an option that you could get a degree in event management. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the trajectory of event management um, and event education over the years. So it started at GW, right? That was the the leader. Right. But going back before that, I had actually been teaching uh, for many years before that as an adjunct professor. I was a mm-hmm. dancer in my youth. And so I taught at GW tap dancing and uh, other classes. And um When we started our business, The Wonder Company, we operated that business for about 20 years and then we sold it. And upon selling the business, I began thinking, what's next? I'm 40 years old, much too young to retire. And um, I remember that while I owned The Wonder Company, I had been conducting seminars and workshops for our employers to ensure that they were trained to a certain level and the delivery of our service would be consistent regardless of the event. And then my first textbook was published. This year will be its 30th anniversary and the eighth edition is being published. I've now passed it on to one of my young PhD students, Dr. Sungwon Lee, who is the editor and I was his assistant for this for this particular book. But when that book came out, I began to get calls, Nicole, from attorneys all over the world asking me if I could testify in trials because during the 1980s, there were lots of accidents at events because the training was poor. It was Mm -hmm. a new industry. And of course, in the United States, it's a very litigious system. People Mm -hmm. would sue regularly. And so to make a long story short, I was the go-to man because I had written the first textbook. And to get ready to testify in these trials, I would go to the library and research what I would be writing in terms of my opinion, and then to be prepared to testify. And in doing these bits of research, I noticed that events were naturally linked to older, more established canons of literature, such as anthropology, sociology, even theology, and that new field technology. So the idea began to germinate. Maybe this could become a university curriculum. Just before I had sold the company, I had produced an event for Oprah Winfrey, the American television presenter for the charity Save the Children. We became friends, and I became even friendlier with her partner, Stedman Graham. Mm -hmm. I called Stedman, and I said, I'm thinking of developing a curriculum for universities, but because I only have a bachelor's degree, I won't be taken seriously. But if you and Oprah would at least endorse this program, I might get my foot in the door of (laughs) higher education. They called back a few days later and said, we'd be happy to do this on one condition. We want you to first offer this curriculum to those people who've historically been disenfranchised, marginalized from the traditional field of business. And what they were talking about were first and foremost women, and secondly, people of color. Mm-hmm. And so we first took the program to HBCUs, Historic Black Colleges and Universities. We took it to uh, Oprah's alma mater, which was Tennessee State University, then to Fisk University, then to universities in Atlanta. All of them thought it was a great idea, but they had no money. It was 1989, I'm sorry, 1991. It was the Iraq war. And so Mm -hmm. the economy had plummeted. 
Mm-hmm. About that same time, my wife had been talking to a friend of hers in Washington who was married to the dean of the medical school at George Washington University. She told her friend what we were doing or what I was doing. And the next thing I know, the president of George Washington University calls me and says, could you return to Washington? I'd like to have a confidential talk with you. So I go to his office and again, serendipity based upon a lifetime of experience. He said, if you'll bring the program here, we'll provide you with an office, a graduate teaching assistant, support, and a full scholarship to earn your master's and doctoral degrees. Well, how could you say no to that? Right. And that's what happened. I stayed at GW for 10 years. It took me three years to earn my master's and doctorate. And then I progressed to associate professor and was then appointed dean of the hospitality college at Johnson and Wales University mm-hmm. in Providence, Rhode Island. And then I moved while I was there, I created the first, the world's first MBA in event leadership. And then I moved to Temple University in Philadelphia. And then out of the blue, <laughs> a colleague from Edinburgh, Scotland said, we'd like you to come to Scotland. Mm-hmm. And that's how we came here in 2007. 2007. I can't believe it's been that long. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. And I've yeah. had the great pleasure of joining you at the university and speaking to your students, which was a real thrill. But um, that's such a great, I didn't realize the background with Oprah and Stedman and 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 all of that. So thank yeah. you for sharing that history. That that was an, a great story and so important for right people time, to know. Right time, right place. Right time, yeah. right place. You know? Right. And, and I think that what, what makes me sad about the industry currently, apart from obviously what's happening with COVID, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that, obviously, but I grew up in an era in the industry where there were the legends, you being one of them, and there were people that you aspired to have that knew your name, right? And, and I now look at my students, and I don't see that wonder in their eyes anymore about the fact that we're using um, you know, a textbook by a legend. Like we've gotten so far away, which is a good thing, I guess, because the industry has obviously grown. But the, for those of us who know sort of the roots of the industry and how it really came together, it saddens me that the current generation of students, like who are they looking up to besides an influencer on, on social media or something, you know? So the tide has changed. I know that that's just evolution and that's generational, but I'm so grateful that I grew up in the industry when I did because I've being able to know people like you and, and um, you know, Andrea Michaels and Anthony Bellotta and all of these people. I got to interview Anthony last week and we were talking a little bit about that and, and um you know, there just are these legends in the industry that um, that really have shaped the industry to what it is today. And the young people coming in just don't really have that appreciation for it. So um, I do my best to try to connect them to, you know, the history of the of the industry. But I feel very grateful that I was able to grow up in 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 your era and, and really benefit from all of the amazing things from the designation to the formal education, now being able to teach in a formal education program, a degree program. Um, all of that really stems from you and a lot of really bold and brave colleagues who 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 really created this industry to be what it is today. So, so thank well, you for that. Just be careful. When you say you've grown up in an era, it means you're really old. Did I you know. know that? It's how I feel. It's how I if feel now. If you say you're part of an era, you're really old. I actually yeah. have a very positive feeling about young people in this industry. 
And I'll tell you why. I've spent the last 30 years teaching full-time in higher education. Mm -hmm. And so I've been able every autumn to see them come into the classroom with their eyes this big and their hearts Mm -hmm. full of expectation and excitement. And when I see them write, oftentimes verbally, they're not able to communicate what they do in writing. But the citations that they use, the people that they quote, such as yourself and others Mm -hmm. that they've researched, are really quite deep. Um, One of the fun things was I was reading an essay one time on uh, greener events, events Mm -hmm. in the environment. And all through it, they said, according to Goldblatt, according to Goldblatt, according to Goldblatt. And I thought, they've cited me too many times. They're not going to get a good mark. They need to be more widely read. And then I looked in the references, and it was actually my son, Sam Goldblatt, who wrote the book (laughs) Greener Meetings and Events. I do think that they are reading widely, and uh, this is the best educated generation we've ever Mm -hmm. produced. So Mm -hmm. I have great hopes for them. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the uh, the world. Obviously, we can't ignore, you know, COVID and the quarantines and, and how really it has just decimated the event industry. Um, it's been great to see how people are, are pivoting to doing stuff online. Um, so your overall thoughts, first of all, just about the future of the industry, given the current events and, and kind of where we're headed. Well, first of all, I've written several articles about this, which you can find on my website, www.joegoldblatt.scot, S-C-O-T. And the most recent one is with my friend David Zolker. David was the producer of the Athens, Greece, Olympic Games opening and closing ceremonies. Mm -hmm. He's produced four Commonwealth Games opening and closing ceremonies. So he's quite a renowned and well-respected public events producer. And he and I talked about the movement from spectacular to transformative. In other words, that if we cannot assemble in groups of 50,000, how can we still create a more transformative outcome among audiences and within general society? And of course, that has to link to things like using events for a charitable function. When he produced the opening ceremonies of the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, Scotland, he had a segment in the opening ceremonies where the audience... 30,000 people would lift their mobile phone, text money to UNICEF, and they raised within 10 minutes six million pounds to help children all over the world. Mm -hmm. So I don't see events diminishing. I see them expanding the footprint, getting even greater as they become more transformative in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think people are going to be anxious to get back to being in the same space together. I mean, I think mm. what, one of the things that the quarantine has has taught us, hopefully, is that, you know, there is this important need for humans to be together in the same room. You know, the technology is great and the technology allows you and I to be having a conversation thousands of miles apart from each other today. But it's even more special when you and I are in the same room together enjoying a meal or at a conference. Um, And so I just am hoping that, you know, I I know we'll eventually get back to that, but that's really the, the unique part of, of being human, right. And and needing to have those social, social interactions. And so um, I think that's important for us to, to, 
continue to strive to getting back to that in the industry, right? As, as much as technology is great. Well, I'm not old enough to remember the Black Plague, but I will tell you this, that in 1840, we had a terrible flu that lasted for 10 years in Edinburgh and in Scotland and in the UK. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people died. But in 1851, we held a World's Fair in Edinburgh and over a million people attended the World's Fair. Mm. So people do reconnect. People have this desire to gather for a common Mm -hmm. purpose. And I believe that will happen again, first in bubbles within your own family or friend group, and then it'll expand as people feel more confident. Mm -hmm. I also remember the polio vaccine because I was a young child when we were taken by our parents to the local school on a Sunday and stood in a long line with other children and we were given a sugar cube, which was the miracle drug created by Dr. Jonas Salk. Mm -hmm. And that sugar cube represented confidence because from that, the swimming pools reopened, the um, uh, public events began to grow again. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's around the corner as soon as a vaccine is discovered. Yeah. Well, we all long for that day, right? What's your best advice for young um, people or, or people who are looking to transition into the event industry? So when a student might come to you and say, how do I break into the industry? What do I, how do I, you know, how do I become you one day, Dr. Goldblatt? Um, how, what is your best advice that you always give, especially to your students? Well, I hate to sound like Miss America, but I don't want them to become Dr. Goldblatt. I want them to be themselves because yeah. they'll be far superior, as I said, much better educated, much more experienced than mm-hmm. I will ever be. So the simple advice is experience and education in equal measure. So oftentimes young people graduate from university without an internship or without practical experience. And that's a terrible disservice mm-hmm. by their institution of higher education education. I always tell students if they graduate top of their class, their CV shows straight A's. They're at the very top, but their experience is here. Mm -hmm. They are unemployable. They must have in the events industry equal measures of experience and perhaps even a wee bit more of progressive experience so Mm -hmm. that when they're hired for that first post, it's at a higher level. Because as you know, anytime you move from job to job, your salary is often based upon your last salary. So you don't want to start with your first salary at the lowest level. You want to aspire for the highest possible salary and benefits uh, upon graduation. So I think experience, progressive professional experience and education. And education means not only the university degree anymore, it means, as we were talking earlier, Mm -hmm. a qualification. The certified Mm -hmm. special events professional, certified meeting professional, certified festival and event executive, a recognized industry qualification. And then, one never stops learning. Um, I, when I was in my 60s, was continuing to take uh, continuing education courses to improve my teaching ability at the university. And uh, I think one must never stop learning. You're right, definitely. So in the spirit of the, the theme of the podcast being the big ask, have there been times in your life when you've had to make a big ask? 
Oh, yes. Well, the first one was my wife when I asked her to marry me. <laughs> the beloved um, Nancy. <laughs> yes, I uh, asked her to join me for dinner. And then I remember saying, let's walk and take a look from the view of the Duke Ellington Bridge in Washington, D.C. There was a beautiful place where you could view scenic beauty. And we stood there on the edge of the bridge and I said, Nancy, all my life I'd hoped that I would meet a person as smart and kind and compassionate and beautiful as you. And I gave her a box with a ring and I said, I hope you will agree to join me in this adventure called marriage and just to let you know if you're unable to say yes, I brought you to this bridge because I plan to jump. <laughs> she looked at me and she said, don't jump, don't jump. And uh, 42 years later, here wow. we are with two children. Yes, that's, I love that. You guys do have an amazing love story and, and she has been such a, um, a partner to you in all of um, your endeavors and travels around the world. And um, it's just been wonderful to, to watch the two of you grow and grow in love for, for so long. So. so the moral to that story is if you're going to have a big ask, make sure that the other person realizes how important it actually is. That it's not <laughs> something subtle or minor. Right. This mm -hmm. is a big ask and there are consequences. So that if the ask isn't fulfilled, there will be consequences. Yep. Definitely. Oh, that's great. I love that story. By the way, so, we just went back to Washington. I was asked to give a speech at George Washington University in connection with my 39th book, which is called The, jo the True Joy of Life. It's my uh -huh. autobiography memoir. And we went back to that same place at the Duke Ellington Bridge. We hadn't been back there in 25 years. And I thought to myself, I'm sure glad she said yes. It was a yeah. long way down. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, I was just going to move into what are you working on that, um, that excites you? And I know your book just came out in the last uh, several months. And so let's talk a little bit about your book and why, why now? Why were you ready now to, to tell? and share your stories? Well, obviously, the first reason was so that my grandson, Hamish, would have a record from his grandfather's point of view of his life. And the book is divided into three parts. The first part is a performer. As I said earlier, my wife and I started out as mimes. And the second part is a producer. As you know, I was a producer of events mm -hmm. for over 25 years. And the last part is professor. And that... Uh, <laughs> was the role that I played in higher education in terms of developing the first curriculum, degree programs, and so on. And so uh, when I wrote the book, I wondered, is there a fourth P? And then I realized there was a theme to my book, and the fourth P is philanthropy. So although I was never a wealthy person, throughout my life, I've always been a volunteer for third sector nonprofit organizations. I've served on dozens of boards. I've raised lots of money for mm -hmm. organizations. And now that I'm fully retired, I have the opportunity to do that full time. So I serve on the board of 
the Edinburgh Jewish Cultural Center. We seek to build the first building for the Jewish people here in the historic city of Edinburgh. So we'll have an opportunity to protect, to preserve, and encourage the growth of Jewish people in our historic city. I serve on the board of the Battle of Preston Pans, which this year has its 250th anniversary. That's the famous Battle of Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites. I uh, served on the board of the Edinburgh Chamber of Commerce for many years, and to my surprise, they awarded me their Lifetime Achievement mm -hmm. Award last year, which was a great honor and thrill. Um, I'm very involved with politics here because you may know that Scotland aspires to become an independent nation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm active in the independence movement. So I'm a busy bee at 68 yeah. years of age and having literally the time of my life through this wonderful fourth phase that I discovered called philanthropy. Uh, you are in, in, without knowing it, you are a huge inspiration to me in just being so present in life wherever wherever your journey takes you. I mean, you, you've never met a stranger in your entire life. You have the great capacity to remember people and places and things. And, you know, you, you know, all my family members everywhere, you know, what they're doing. That is just amazing to me, given the, um, the amazing Rolodex you must have of, of people in your life. And so I just, I, there are moments where I think, gosh, I wouldn't, I wish I could be more like Dr. Goldblatt and remember a name or, or, or just be more present in, in my purpose and in, in sort of what I'm doing at that moment. So thank you for being a huge inspiration to me without you probably even knowing it. We're thousands okay. of miles apart, but I'm deeply, I'm deeply flattered and honored. You, you yeah. know how to, to, this is the end of my day here in Edinburgh, the beginning yep. of your day in San Diego. So that, that's a lovely thing to hear after a long oh, day today. By yes. the way, since you host a podcast, you'd be pleased to know that I host for the Edinburgh Interfaith Association, of which I'm also on the board, a weekly podcast on Tuesdays. It's at 1 p.m. our time, and it's with a Muslim woman, uh, Nassim, and myself, and we interview people of faith and no faith, talking mm -hmm. about during the pandemic and beyond how mm -hmm. faith and spirituality has enriched our lives but it's it's funny that um, you mentioned how um, remembered names and so on reminds me of a funny story Nicole just before I retired a dear friend of mine sadly developed Alzheimer's at the age of 60 mm. and I thought I need to do something to help. I can't donate millions, but maybe I could volunteer. And there was a study that came out asking for professors to be in the group that was being studied. And the reason is supposedly professors are the last people to develop Alzheimer's and dementia because we use our brain throughout sure. our whole life. Anyway, I volunteered. They gave me all the medical tests. Then they started giving me the psychological tests. <laughs> And I won on one Friday afternoon, about 6 p.m., I received a phone call at the house. Professor Goldblatt, this is Dr. So-and-so. I'm sorry to tell you, you failed the test. You can't be in the study. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I failed the test. Oh, my gosh. Here, I'm getting ready to retire and have a wonderful yeah. life. Oh, no. I said, what do you recommend? She said, well, we have a memory clinic that you might want to start coming to. A memory clinic, I thought. So I said to my wife, Nancy, am I forgetting things? She said, well, what did they mention? They said, well, 
part of the questions that I was asked, do you ever lose your keys? Well, yeah. <laughs> do you ever misplace your spectacles? Well, yeah. And those things ruled me out. She said, Joe, you need to go down fighting. Go back yeah. and see that director and tell them that everybody loses their keys. Everybody loses their spectacles. So indeed I did. I made an appointment. The next week I met with the director of the study. He listened to me for about five minutes and he said, hold it. I can tell in speaking with you, you have no memory problem at all. The study that we're conducting is very narrow, and that's probably why you were ruled out. But he said, what you're saying is so interesting and so helpful to me. Do you mind if I take some notes? And I said, that'll be fine. And with that, this 35-year-old PhD went, where did I put my pen? (laughs) And so... So I guess the truth is, like everybody, I have lapses of memory, hopefully not too many lapses of judgment. And uh, uh, what I always attribute that to is keys and spectacles are not important. Mm -hmm. But remembering your parents is important. Yes. There you go. Yes. Well, thank you. That's that's beautiful. So before we move into the rapid fire questions, um, what is it like being an American living in Scotland? So what do you miss about America and what do you love about Scotland? Well, that's such a good question because I was just in America last September Mm -hmm. for this book tour. We went to six cities to give speeches. Um, I realized what I miss about America is the enthusiasm, the ambition, the confidence that America has always shown and the unity. You know, when you think of the diversity and 50 different states, each one with a different culture, uh, the unity under patriotism and so on. When I was a young child, we used to every morning in primary school stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, at lunchtime, we'd say a prayer together in a public school. So there was always this thing that brought us together as an American Mm -hmm. people. So... What is different in Scotland and in Europe is not the big things culturally, it's the small things. For example, the first time I went to dinner with colleagues here 14 years ago, we were seated in a very dark restaurant and it was time to have our coffee. And I had my coffee and at the table there was a small bowl with little brown cubes in it. And I took one of the cubes and I placed it in my coffee cup. Mm -hmm. And my colleague across the table said, you really like your coffee sweet. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you've just put tablet in your coffee. Tablet is fudge in Scotland. (laughs) It's something that's served as an after-dinner treat, you know, Mm -hmm, like a mm -hmm. thin mint or something. And I placed it in my coffee cup. So it's all the subtle things. Another thing that happened was... um, When I first went to Glasgow, I was putting on a uh, trade show, a booth, a stall, and I needed some shag carpeting to go in the Mm -hmm. bottom of the booth. So I went to the front desk of the hotel, the receptionist, and I said, pardon me, could you help me find some shag in Glasgow? (laughs) And this young woman blinked her eyes and she said, this is not that kind of hotel. (laughs) And I said, 
I think I know what you mean. Because shag in Great Britain has a very different connotation very different. Yes. than it does <laughs> in the United States. So it's not the big things in mm-hmm. culture. It's the wee things again. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so very true. I knew exactly where that was headed when you said the word shag. So, <laughs> all right. So very quickly, let's wrap up with our rapid fire questions. Again, these are just intended to be fun. First thing that comes to your mind. So, all right. First one, title of your lifetime movie. The True Joy of Life, my book. Yeah, perfect, perfect. If you could change places with any celebrity right this minute, who would it be? Barack Obama. Perfect. When do you feel happiest? With my grandson doing magic tricks for me. (laughs) And another one on the way. Do we know boy or girl yet? Boy. Boy, another boy. Okay, great, great. All right. If you were running for politics, what would be your biggest campaign promise? Compassion. Ultimate dinner party. Which four guests do you invite and why? Well, that's actually changed. I've been asked that before. After this interview, you would be among them. Because oh, you so ask sweet. such wonderful questions and you're oh, such you're so a good sweet. listener. No, I mean that sincerely. Oh, I would you. invite your good self. I would invite Barack Obama. Yes. I would invite Dr. Jonas Salk, who mm-hmm. developed the polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I would invite... Tchaikovsky. Because you have to have music after you have to have music. You do. Oh, I am in good company at that at that dinner party. Believe me, I got to bring my best game to that. Yes. Okay. next one. Right this minute, you have to get a tattoo. What do you get and why? J plus N in the center of a red heart. And that's simply Joe and Nancy. Yes, that's perfect. Uh, What is your wish for the next generation? Justice and mercy. Perfect. Yep. Biggest pet peeve in business. Arrogance. When does your light shine the brightest? During mindfulness. Mm -hmm. I practice mindfulness every day. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Okay, great. Um, And last one. Um, What is currently a big ask that you might have either personally or professionally? And how can we help you? Scotland, like all of the destinations of the world, is greatly challenged by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And one way that the challenge can be minimized is by Americans and the rest of the world falling in love all over again Mm -hmm. with our destination 
and coming to visit us as soon as they are able. Yeah. Because you've been to Scotland. It is mm-hmm. truly one of the most beautiful destinations mm-hmm. in the entire world. And we're ready as soon as we are able, due to health and due to security, to welcome the world again. So the big ask is, do come to Scotland. Oh, I love it. I will. We are desperate to get to Scotland again. You know, I'm a huge Anglophile, so um, I'll take anything in that in that beautiful aisle that um, is across the pond. So, uh, yes. So, Dr. Goldblatt, thank you so much for taking your time and spending it with me and sharing your wisdom with me and, and everyone who has the fortune of watching this. So, please give my regards to Nancy. And um, thank you again for saying yes to the big ask when I asked you to be a guest on the podcast. My great pleasure, Nicole. My great pleasure. And give my regards to your parents and your sister and brother-in-law and to Ian and to Elise. Yeah. You are so blessed to have such a great legacy of your parents and also to have such a wonderful family uh, that I've come to know and love all these years. We're lucky, aren't we, you and I? We're very lucky. We're very lucky. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Ass Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe to and share the podcast with your friends. And be sure to connect with me on social at Miss Nicole Matthews or at Big Ass Podcast. Until next time, let today be the day you make a big ask. 